So on Easter, as we've already done, uh, there's this back and forth at, at, at churches that, uh, that believe in, in Jesus and his resurrection. Alyssa already read it, uh, led us in it, where uh, the person on stage says he is risen. The church responds, he is risen indeed. And, and if you've been a part of a church, if you come on Easter, you've probably heard this over and over again. But maybe you don't know where it's from. It's from Luke uh, 24, verse 34. Uh, it's after the, the men on the road to Emmaus. They, they're, they're with Jesus, though they don't understand that. He opens up the scriptures to them and explains uh, the, the Christ, shows the Christ throughout the scriptures. And then he leaves and they realize that they were with Jesus. And they say uh, to uh, the, the 11 and some others that were gathered, they say the Lord has risen indeed, right? They, they testify, we have seen the Lord. He has risen. So let's, let's do that again. He is risen that was good. That was good. That was better than nine o'clock. They did have way fewer people, but they, they seem to be a little tired. Don't tell them, though, this is being recorded. So um, a year ago, we didn't get to gather in person. Uh, it, it's hard to believe that, that just a year ago, we didn't get to do this. And I'm so grateful that we get to come together and we get to celebrate Easter, that we get to celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. And there, there are many reasons the, the resurrection matters, but the one that, that I cling to the most is that the resurrection tells us, it tells me, that Jesus' death was accepted as payment for sin. It, it's like the invoice that's stamped, paid in full. Um, now, I, I recognize that Maybe for some in the room or some watching online right now, when a church starts talking about Jesus rising from the dead, this might sound like mythology to you. Uh, for our sermon today, I'm not going to make arguments for the resurrection. I've done that in, in previous uh, Easter sermons. But I do want to give you, if that's you, or even if it's not you, even if you totally believe in the resurrection, I would encourage you just to think more about why you believe in the evidence that we, we have. So I want to give you just a few lines of evidence. I'm just going to drop them down, and then you can pick them up and, and, and run with them and investigate and research for yourself. But here's a few. Uh, the empty tomb. Uh, Jesus' death and resurrection happened in a place that was hostile towards Christians. Um, there were plenty of people in that city that, that wanted to stop this new religion. And all they would have had to do was produce the, the body that, that they claim did not raise, that couldn't have raised. But they couldn't do that. They couldn't even keep it a secret that they paid off the guards, the officials paid off the guards to make up this story that the, the disciples, who were kind of bumbling idiots, really, that they somehow outsmarted these trained guards and stole the body of Jesus. So you got to deal with the empty tomb. Uh, another thing, another line of evidence for you to think through and, and look into is the disciples absolutely believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, now, they, they died for this belief. Now, just because someone dies for something they believe does not make it true. I, I understand that. But it does tell us that they truly believed it. Right? You might take lies to your deathbed. You might take secrets to your deathbed. But you aren't going to die trying to keep a story that you and your buddies uh, fabricated. And remember, uh, these men, they, they fled. 
uh, on the night of Jesus' arrest. They hid, they were scared. And then uh, it wasn't until after they saw Jesus resurrected that everything changed for them. Uh, another thing that you could look into, another line of evidence, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, historians, both secular and Christian historians, agree. Paul was real. Right? He, he walked on this planet. Uh, we know that, uh, that he was infamous for persecuting Christians. He was incredibly violent towards Christians. He had them killed, and then everything changed for him. His whole life changed. Uh, He flipped to the other side, and he became the biggest proponent of the gospel of the good news. He, he claims to have, have seen the risen Lord. He writes about many others who had seen the risen Lord, including the 500 that saw him at once. And if this were not true, uh, there would have been plenty of people alive when he wrote these letters to refute his claims, and it would have squelched it. And lastly, the last thing I would encourage you to look into is to read the witnesses for yourself, right? We have God's word. I would encourage you to read the New Testament and see what these different authors have to say about Jesus. Again, none of that was the sermon, but I guess that was just kind of pre-sermon for you. Um, On Easter, obviously, I talk about the cross. I talk about the resurrection, but the challenge uh, is to talk about sin. Like, you can't talk about the cross. You can't talk about the resurrection without talking about sin. And today, uh, in 2021, we really don't think sin is that big of a problem. We certainly don't see sin as the massive issue that scripture tells us it is. So I'm getting ready for Easter. I'm, I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, will you just give me something that will help help us understand what, what a big problem sin is, that, that it just completely cuts off the, the way to you. Would you give me like something that, that shows that we're just barred from your presence, right? Like, God, just give me, just give me an image or, or something that, that, that we have this massive barrier that no one can get around. And then I saw this picture. This is uh, the, the ever given. Thank you. Nine o'clock didn't even laugh at that. I thought that was funny. Yeah. So if you don't have a clue what's been going on in the world, this is the Ever Given. It's a massive container ship. I believe it's the biggest container ship. That's the, uh, it's the Suez Canal, right? So, um, so much of, of our goods go through the Suez Canal. It's this man-made canal, and the Ever Given was stuck for six days. I think they've estimated the cost for like around a billion dollars, okay? So 422 ships we're stuck, right? Trying to go, I, I imagine, either way through the Suez Canal, but, but the ever given was, was stuck there. There was no way of passing, right? And, and we have a problem kind of like that, right? We're stuck. There, there's, there's, no, there's no way. Ever since Adam and Eve, we, we've been, humanity's been blocked from God. Our relationship has been broken with the Holy God. So today, we come and we celebrate together that Jesus came, that he lived the perfect life, that he died the death that we deserve to die. He, he did that in our place as our substitute. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. He made the way for us to be forgiven of our sin. And you and I haven't seen the risen Lord with our own eyes. We're not eyewitnesses, but we have accounts in God's word from the eyewitnesses and I mentioned that Paul wrote about his own account as well as, as many, many others. The Gospels are accounts of the eyewitnesses. We weren't there. Just like 
you and I weren't there to see Abraham Lincoln's assassination, but it's not necessary for me to be there. The witnesses are sufficient, and, and we, I want you to know, we can have total confidence in God's word. And, and maybe you come uh, to church maybe once or twice a year, maybe come all the time, and, and, and you know that, that the Bible was given to us by God, but honestly you have a hard time believing that this ancient text could, could be translated into our modern English, and, and we could be certain that, that we have what God intended for us to have. If that's you, um, or, or if you just want to learn more about how we got our Bibles, I would encourage you. We've got a great class that, uh, that Matt Q did uh, back in 2018 called How We Got Our Bible. It's a three-part uh, recording that you can listen to, and, and, and believe me, you will walk away with, with so much confidence in, in what we hold today in the Scripture, and I, I want you to have confidence in God's word, because it's, it's through God's word that we hear about the resurrection, and, and that matters, right? This, this matters to us. What you believe about the resurrection is the most important thing about you, and I'm not exaggerating at all there. Roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus' death and then his resurrection was the turning point for all of human history. That's the claim of Scripture Right? That's the claim of any church that's worth anything. So you need to know for yourself if that is indeed true. And I'm saying that to everyone. Right? I'm saying that to people that come to church every week, people that are just visiting with us. You need to know if this is true or not. Because my fear is that we could come in, it's Easter Sunday, maybe you do this every year. And we can just kind of be ho-hum about Easter. We can think, man, I know this stuff. Or, or maybe we're thinking about Easter brunch afterwards uh, or, or what we're going to do for spring break or, or, or did you watch that awesome game last night, which was awesome. Uh, what happened, though, 2,000 years ago changed everything. And today we rightly focus on the cross and, and on the resurrection. And, and I've been also marveling at, at um, the supporting details that the eyewitnesses give us. There's, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And, and, and obviously they all talk about the cross, they talk about the resurrection, but they also give us their own perspective, their own angle, just like if any four people witnessed the same event. They, they would see the, the same thing, but they would also catch little different nuances, and, and I've been uh, just loving those as I prepared for this Easter. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27. I'm gonna start us off in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And Matthew doesn't tell us uh, the time when, when Jesus was, was nailed to the cross, but Mark, one of the other gospel writers, does. He lets us know that it was about 9 a.m. in the morning. So what we read here with, with Matthew, and, and understand they, they, they marked time, they, they spoke about time differently. So when he says it's the sixth hour, that means it's noon. So from, uh, from noon to three, the whole land was covered in darkness. Uh, historians, scientists know that, that this wasn't uh, like an, an eclipse. It was not the time for that. And there's theories about was it some kind of crazy dust storm or, or was there just incredibly heavy cloud cover? Matthew doesn't tell us how God did it. Uh, we just know that that, that God did do it. And whether it was by natural means that he used or supernatural means, God did this. And he, he's showing us that this death on the cross was different 
than every death before it and after it. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Right? Jesus was sovereign. He, he, he yielded up. He, he laid down his own life. Verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And there's, there's a lot going on in just those few verses. It's shocking to read about these events. And these aren't even like the main dish, right? These are just the, the side dishes, but, but how intriguing, how flavorful they are. Right? They're, they're not the focal point, and, and maybe you forget about these things that happened Right, that the earthquake happened, that, that, um, that after Jesus rose, that, that other people were resurrected from the grave and, and walked into Jerusalem and, and appeared to many people. But before both of those, we read that the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's all Matthew says about it. And, and maybe that's because he uh, knows that his Jewish readers will know exactly what the curtain is about um, but if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, we, we might have to think a little bit harder. So here's uh, an image of uh, the curtain. Um, Matthew gives us one detail uh, about the curtain in his account here. He, he, he tells us, he's telling us that God tore it. And he does that by saying that it was torn from top to bottom. If, if man was going to tear it, they, they'd start at the bottom and tear up. But this was torn from above. And, and the curtain or the veil was very important um, until uh, the cross. You'll notice that there are creatures uh, on this curtain, and, and you, maybe you don't know what they are. Um, they're actually angels. They're called cherubim. Now, we imagine, or I'm guessing you imagine, angels look much differently than this, right? Most of the images we see of angels are these chubby little dudes uh, with harps floating on a cloud. For whatever reason, their backside is often exposed, which is a little creepy. Um, but there's certainly nothing there's nothing intimidating about that vision that we have of angels, but uh, these cherubim, these angels, are, are nothing like that. Right? These guys are, are like the elite special forces of angels. Um, I love shows and movies uh, about like special forces or or the FBI. Like I kind of geek out on, on those things. My poor neighbor works for the FBI, and, and once I found that out. Um, I just had a lot of questions for him. And, and like most of the time I had a filter and I'd let 
one or two questions out and then pretend like I didn't care anymore. Um, but one time they invited us over for dinner and the floodgates broke and I just asked him question after question. They've not invited us back over for dinner since then. Um, I've never met a Navy SEAL before, but man, if I did, there would be no filter. I would go all fanboy on him. If you're a Navy SEAL, it's probably best just to not tell me. Just lie to me. Tell me, tell me you work in sales or something. Um, so the cherubim, they're sort of like that, but, but obviously uh, way, way better. They, they exist to fight and to protect and even to destroy. They're described as having bodies like men, but the description of their faces is, is, is so much harder. Uh, it, he, they talk about it like, like having the face of like a lion or an eagle, which they're nothing like each other. But what we know is, is that they look like these fierce predators that they are, and, and they're in many places in Scripture, but we're going to go all the way back to where we first see them, the Garden of Eden. Now, at, at first, they weren't there in the garden, but then a history-changing moment came, and the cherubim were called to the garden. They came to guard the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve chose to sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They disobeyed God, believing that they knew what was good for them instead of trusting and believing in what God told them was good for them, and that changed everything. So now sin is in the picture, and sin separates humanity from God. Our sin is cosmic treason against Yahweh, against God, the creator of all things. And this relationship between man and God was, was broken. The access that Adam and Eve, that people had to God, was no longer possible Right? They were now sinful creatures. Humanity could not approach God in their sinful, polluting state. So Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden where the tree of life was. And this is where the cherubim come in. They were sent to guard the garden. We see this in Genesis 3. It tells us that they're there with these flaming swords as if they weren't intimidating enough already. Well, why did they need to be there? It's so that Adam and Eve couldn't come and eat from the tree of life in the garden. If they did that, they would live forever in this sinful, broken state. So the cherubim, these intimidating protectors, are actually, in a strange way to us, a sign of grace. The cherubim make it crystal clear that our sin is not just this little problem that we can somehow find a way around. It's a problem that's so great that we need to be saved from it. We needed Jesus to come and rescue us. The cherubim in the Bible remind us of how holy God is and how unholy we are. So much so that, that there needs to be a guard keeping us away from God because of our sin. The, the cherubim make it clear that sin is a big deal. Now in day-to-day -day life, we forget that sin's a big deal. Right? We're, we're saturated in our own imperfections and in the imperfections of people around us. And, and we read the news or watch the news and we read about people that seem to be even worse than us. But the cherubim remind us of how devastating our sin is. The cherubim kept guard. They blocked off the way. Humanity could not approach God. Now, now we're spiritually dead and we would physically die and return to the dust that God had brought Adam and Eve from. But fortunately, the story of Scripture does not stop there. 
Next, we find cherubim with the Israelites as Israel is wandering in the wilderness. And God had commanded them to make this portable temple. It was called the tabernacle. And this is where they, they worshipped God. The tabernacle, I think we'll have a, a picture of it, an image of it. Uh, the tabernacle had a courtyard where, they could, uh, where God's people could go. And, and, and bring their offerings and their sacrifices. And then, and then there was a, a place called the holy place. And this was just for the priests to go. Uh, but beyond that was called the holy of holies, this inner chamber. And it's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and on the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim guarding the, the very presence of God. And if, if you're reading through your Bible and you get to this point, you should be really encouraged because now, suddenly, God has made a way to dwell with his people, right? This perfectly holy God now is in the midst of sinful people. And I mentioned there, there's the courtyard where people could come, they could bring their offerings, their sacrifices. Then the next section required this greater clearance. It was only for the priests. And then in the Holy of Holies, only once a year, um, and, and it was only, only one person, the high priest, could go in after doing all the things that God had required of him to, to purify himself. He could go in for this once a year moment, and, and if he did it wrong, he would die. And this is where we find the curtain. The curtain was masterfully woven. It was a, a thick thick curtain. It was made of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. There's some accounts that, that say it, it looked like the sky, like the heavenly firmament. And as I mentioned before, the cherubim were woven into the curtain, separating the holy place from the holy of holies where, where God was. And, and again, here the cherubim guarding. Again, they're blocking the way to God. That's how God could dwell in the midst of unholy people. The access to God had to be barred. And here the curtain hangs. The curtain was splattered with blood as sacrifice after sacrifice is given to the priests. This curtain prevents the priests from even seeing into the Holy of Holies, let alone the, the Ark of the Covenant. This is it's, it's such a big deal, and somehow I've just missed this like, as I've read through the Bible that when, when, they, when they were on the move, right, they'd pack up the whole tabernacle, they'd, they'd stick the, uh, the, um, the poles through the Ark of the Covenant so that they didn't touch it, and, and then the curtain right, that separated the, the, holy of, the holy place from the Holy of Holies, they, they folded up the curtain, and there they, they covered the Ark of the Covenant, right, even in transport. Right? God's, the, the, covenant, the Ark of the Covenant could not be seen. They had to be blocked from that. And there the cherubim were guarding God's presence. God's presence. And there the cherubim guarding sinful people from the holy God. It's this constant reminder that sin keeps us from God. It keeps us from what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden before they rebelled. And when we fast forward to Solomon, he builds a, a temple, right? One that, that is not going to move. The tabernacle existed as Israel wandered in the wilderness, but now God's people were in the promised land and now had the temple, and, and, or now uh, had the temple. And here in the Holy of Holies stood uh, these two cherubim overlaid in gold, 15 feet tall, each of them, their, their wings outspread, and from wingtip to wingtip was, was 15 feet in span. 
And they stood next to each other with, with their wingtips touching. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. And again, the thick curtain blocking the entrance of the Holy of Holies, the, the cherubim woven into this fabric, reminding the priests that, that only the high priest can enter and only on the day that God prescribed and only after purification. Then fast forward to the cross. There Jesus was nailed as our substitute. Jesus was both fully God and fully man, and we absolutely needed him to be both. Jesus, God, was without sin, and as man, he could fully represent us to God. And on the cross, he made an exchange. Uh, think of it almost like a, a bank transfer. The, the word uh, is, is imputed. He imputed uh, from our account our sin to his account, and he imputed his righteousness from his account to our account. Our sin barred us from God's presence. It's why the curtain was needed. It's why the cherubim had to guard the entrance of the garden and the holy of holies. We could not be good enough on our own. We needed Jesus to be the one who could be good for us. Jesus was the spotless sacrifice that could meet the payment necessary for sin. One of the accusations that uh, they, they uh, tried to get Jesus crucified with uh, was a statement that he made. Uh, John recorded it in John 2, 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And Jesus wasn't talking about Solomon's temple. He wasn't talking about Herod's temple. Jesus' body would be the temple. Right? He was the place of access to God. On the cross, Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. He was the spotless lamb. Scripture tells us that Jesus is our high priest, representing us to the Father and the Father to us. The curtain in the temple was no longer needed, and this is great news. This thick curtain keeping even the priest from the presence of God was no longer necessary. The cherubim who'd been guarding them uh, since the garden were no longer needed because Jesus had made the way for man to be reconciled. That if, if we would repent of our sin, meaning we turn from sin and we turn to God, we, we turn from choosing foolishly to try and be the rulers of our own lives like Adam and Eve did, and instead we give ourselves over to God. We place our trust in him. We place our faith in his death and his, in, in, in his resurrection. And when we do that, we're forgiven of all of our sin. And we have access to God the Father through his son, Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 and following says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and uh, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Christ's flesh being torn opened the way for us through that thick curtain that was there to block us from God's presence. Now Jesus is the way to God's presence for all who would enter through him. The blood that time after time was, was sprinkled and splattered on that curtain was now replaced 
by the blood of Jesus that was sufficient to pay for sin. No more sacrifices were needed. Let's pick up back in, in Matthew 27, uh, in verse 57. So Jesus has died at this point, and it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. And Matthew tells us that both Marys were there when Jesus was laid in the tomb. So that on the third day, when they show up to the tomb and it's empty, we know that they weren't confused about where the location of the tomb was. They didn't, they didn't mix it up with some other tomb that was empty. No, they knew right where it was. And a stone was rolled in front of it. The stone was sealed. And there was a guard placed there because the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they remembered, wait, Jesus said that he's going to die. And then three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. Let's put a guard there and we're going to prevent that from happening. So they were ready, sort of. Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His, clo his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And there's this rumor that the officials had started. They paid off the guards and, and, and told them to say that the disciples had, had stolen the body. Right? These are fishermen, a tax collector. The, these guys all took off when Jesus was arrested. They were not going to pull off uh, this feat with a professional guard. Jesus had risen from the dead as the 500 witnesses would, would be able to attest to. The angel instructed Mary to go and tell the disciples that he had risen. And then he says, tell them, I'll, I'll meet you in Galilee. And Jesus had actually already said this to them back in, in Matthew 26, verses 31 and 32. Um, but perhaps he knew with the trauma of that night of his arrest that they would have forgotten this. But this is what he said to them in verse 31. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He tells them, you are all going to ditch me. Every one of you will abandon me. You, you call me Lord. You say you're going to follow me wherever I go. But I'm telling you, you're going to bail. You're going to run and leave me and I'll die. And then I'll see you in a few days. And I get hung up on the, the uh, you're going to bail, I'm dying, I'll see you in a couple days. Right? There's nothing in between there. That's so strange. 
Have you ever betrayed someone? Like, like truly just abandoned them in their time of need. If and when you see that person again, and, and if you want some sort of relationship with them, there are things that, that need to be said. Right? There, there may be some tears that have to be shed. There, there needs to be an asking of forgiveness. But Jesus says to them, I'll see you in a few days in Galilee after you abandon me. What a picture of God's mercy. I heard someone tell a story trying to illustrate this. He, he said, imagine that you and a friend, you're on a walk, right? You're, you're walking down this street, and then out of nowhere, this group of just bad dudes, they come out, and they jump you, and they just start beating you. And you're getting hit and knocked around, but somehow you, you get out of the, the pile of people, and you just start running as your friend is just getting pummeled. You don't look back. You're just running as hard as you can so that you can get out of there. You run all the way home, and you start tending to your wounds. You take a shower. You go to bed just thankful that you're alive. Well, maybe the next day or even a couple days later, you go on a walk on that same street, and then you see your friend, even though he's barely recognizable, the state he's in, you see your friend, and then he sees you, and he smiles at you, and he starts running towards you, and he just embraces you and says, I'm so glad you're okay. And then he just picks up the conversation right where, where it left off before the two of you got jumped. Right? You don't even have time for tears to fall from your eyes that would be really strange. That would, that would be something that you do not deserve. That's mercy. Jesus' mercy here towards these men is shocking, right? The disciples really did this. They, they scattered, just like Jesus said they would. And he still tells them, I'll be your savior, even after you abandon me. That's what he did for them. The mercy of God is unlike anything that we know. They, they all left him. Peter, Peter denied even knowing him after Jesus said, you're going to do this. Right? They, they all hide like frightened little children, which don't get me wrong, I would have too. And yet he received them as his own. That's what Jesus did for the disciples, and, and that's what he'll do for everyone who comes to him. Right? No matter how long you've been running from him or even how many times you've run from him, he will receive all who put their trust in him and make him Lord of their life. And if you don't know this, this picture here, this is all of us. We all run from God. And maybe you're aware of your running from God, but maybe, maybe you've been blind to it. Maybe you've never even realized that until right now. I think in those couple verses, if we're looking, we really do see how incredible God's mercy is, that he would welcome a rebel, someone who abandons him. He'd welcome that same person into his family. He died for us. He was resurrected for us. His body and his blood, by that he opened the way for you to God. There's no curtain blocking you from God. We, we walk through Jesus. We trust in Jesus. His mercy is for all who would trust in him as Lord. We celebrate that today. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you. 
And if we're thinking rightly, we're, we're just dumbfounded that, that you uh, would love us at all, but, but especially that you would love us in this way as, as every one of us has gone our own way running from you. Jesus, we, we thank you that, that you did lay down your life on that cross for us, that on the third day that, that you rose from the dead, that you uh, commissioned the disciples to tell the whole world about you, Jesus. That's why we know about you today, Lord. Because for generations now, those who know the good news have been spreading the good news that, that you have risen, that you're the only way to be forgiven of for your mercy. It's in your name we pray, amen. amen.